This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. Indeed it is. This is Rebetzin Edel Kozulski wishing you all a Shavua Tov, a Chodesh Tov. We are now officially in the month of Elul, which basically means four weeks today. Please, God, I will not be on air and hopefully neither will any of you. We will rather be sitting in shul um, celebrating the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Can you actually believe how time has really, really flown and we've got one month left before we welcome in the year 5780. My, 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 time has really, really flown. And uh, just before we get stuck into our mystical texts of Chumash and start actually learning about World War One. Um, I'm going to debunk a myth that World War One started in 1914 or whenever it did start, there was a much bigger war called World War One. That started biblically. Uh, I would like to remind all the listeners that now that we are in the month of Elul, um, it's pretty well known that um, during this month we are told from a mystical point of view that the king is in the field, that Hashem, God, removes himself from the heavenly palace, um, bypasses all the security um, detail that is around him and comes down into the field to be with the people, meaning that during this, the next 30 days, Hashem is very, very close to us. He is mingling amongst us, and it is very, very easy to speak to him, to ask him um, for stuff, to have contact with him. And this month of Elul is actually, I was thinking the other day, quite an intriguing concept um, because in other um well, I'm really only comparing it to the secular. What, what, how do we celebrate the secular year? Well, there's just a countdown for the 31st of December slash 1st of January, and all we do is party. Judaism has actually got an incredible insight into change and people needing and wanting to change or to take on New Year's resolutions. We have a 30-day preparation um, for that event, and when the New Year does come around, we're actually quite solemn about it because we're going to take that which we choose to change very, very seriously. So the king is in the field right now, and we have a 30-day window um, opportunity to take stock of where we are, decide what things that we want to throw out, change, and start going through that change. And, of course, one of the other customs for the month of Elul is um, to say chapter 27 of Tehillim every single day, which talks about Chava, talks about repentance, talks about Hashem being our light and our guide and trusting in Hashem, and many people have a custom to take the whole book of Tehillim and divide it up into three chapters a day, meaning as of yesterday, since today is already the the, the, the um, second of Elul, what we do is that we um, say three chapters every single day. So yesterday was chapters one, two, and three. Today is four, five, and six, and so we continue. Tomorrow will be seven, eight, and nine. You could say it in English. You could say it in Hebrew. The main thing is that we say it, and if you continue that all the way until um, Yom Kippur, um, on Yom Kippur there are you actually we actually finish up um, maybe about two dozen of them, which I will remind um, listeners then. By the time the end of Ne'ilah of Yom Kippur comes about, we have completed the entire book of Tehillim. And as I have on my podcasts on Tehillim on this station, um, 
just for you all to recall, it says that if we knew the power of Tehillim, we would be just saying it every single day. Tehillim has the power to bulldoze away any negativity, any obstacles in, in our way. Um, and certainly now that we are facing a new year round the corner, we'll want to clear the forest of all the obstacles. So um, start up with that. And um, start feeling connected to God and doing a cheshbon nefesh, an accounting of the soul. And, um, you know, let's start making right anything that has been wronged. Um, one last thing about Rosh Hashanah, and I'm very, very passionate about this, and this is primarily a shout-out to all you ladies out there. Um, you know, we tend to get bogged down by the meals and the salads and the food that we have to serve. And, you know, everybody wants, obviously, to make their Yom Tov table um, ornate and delectable, etc. And kolakavod, go ahead and do it. But let's just try, take off the edge that we don't have to go completely overboard and have five salads and six desserts and seven meats. And you get my drift. Cut down somewhat one dish of each course and um, think about either taking the money that you've saved on that dish and giving it to one of the worthy charitable causes around Johannesburg or elsewhere um, or think about inviting people that don't have anywhere to go to your home to spend the, the Yamim Tovim and that's for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Let's be more people focused than food focused because gee, the amount of food that actually goes through our houses, the amount of cooking, etc., etc. While a good thing, because we have to bring oinig, we have to bring delight and 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 royalty to our yomtiv tables. We sometimes tend to um, overdose on that fact. So cut it down a little bit and take that energy and either invite other people to your home or give that money away to institutions that will feed people who need it this yomtiv. <laughs> This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. And now we can get on to the topic of the Mystical Text, learning the Chumash, learning the five books of Moses, the book of Genesis. We are going to start on chapter 14 um, of the book of Genesis in the Parsha of Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha enumerating the, um, the travels and the experiences of Avraham Avinu, Avraham, our forefather, um, he was tested many, many times, in fact, ten times, and um, he's landed up having to fish his nephew Lot out from trouble um, on two occasions. This is going to be one of them. Um, then next week or the week after, we are going to see when he gets into trouble again. Last week, we had we had the discussion of Lot. Uh, lots of shepherds having an argument with Abraham's shepherd and not muzzling their animals and allowing them to pasture anywhere. And at that point in time, Abraham said, you know, wherever you go, I'll just go in the opposite direction. So um, Lot moves to the, villi- the, the city of Stom, which is, as we know today, in the Dead Sea area. Um, and I guess beknownst to him, there was a war, and this is what I was talking about in the um, in the introduction. We actually are faced with World War One, because, as we know from Parshat Noach, uh, Noach's three sons had seventy nations. That was the civilized world, and certain kings came about in that um, 
proliferation of, of, of civilization. And as human beings are, no one can really be happy with what they've got. They'll always argue with what they don't have. And so we are now faced with a war. I'm going to be reading the verses, um, and they basically uh, describe the kings that are around. So it goes like this. This is verse 1 of chapter 14, if you are following with a chumash. This all happened in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar. There was Amraphel, that was one king. Arioch, Melech, Elasar, another king's name. Arioch, the king of Elasar. Kedar Omer, Melech Elam. There's a third king called Kedar Omer. He was the king of Elam, Vetidal Melech Goyim, and there was a fourth king called Tidal, the king of Goyim. So in one camp we have what's called the four kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Kedarla Omer, and Tidal. Four big kings. And then what did they do? Asu Milchama, they went to war against another axis of kings. Who were they? They were Bera, Melech Storm, Bera, the king of Storm, Ve'ed Birsha, Melech Amoira, and Birsha, the king of Amoira, Shinav, Melech Adma, Shinav, the king of Adma, Ve'shem Ever, Melech Tzvoyim, and Shem Ever, the king of Tzvoyim. I'm not translating any of these things because they are all places. Now, what this becomes known as in History is the war of the four kings against the five kings. But we actually have to get a little bit of uh, back history um, of what was going on. So from the Midrash, we are told that Amraphel, that first guy, that first king that is described, he's in the axis of the four kings. Amraphel is usually identified as Nimrod. Nimrod, as you know, was the the king that threw Abraham into the fiery furnace, the king who made himself into a god that everybody believed was God. So what actually happened, um, taking some steps back and filling in the, the holes of, of what the Chumash is telling us, is that in this axis of four kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Gedalla, Omer, and Tidal, Kedarla Omer specifically was one of the leaders in Nimrod's kingdom. Now, when the people of Babylon, of modern-day Iraq, as we know, were dispersed all over the world after they built the Tower of Babel, Kedarla Omer went and set up a king in Elam, and he actually rebelled against Nimrod. He was successful in his rebellion. He didn't want Nimrod, who thought he was the be-all and end-all, to be king over him. He was successful in his rebellion, and he conquered five other kingdoms, which is this axis of five. Bera, the king of Storm, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemever, the king of Tzavoyim. Okay, now what happened after that is that these five kings subjugated themselves, or sorry, they wouldn't do it themselves, subjugate, were subjugated to Chedarla Omer, and they paid tribute to him every single year. And this went on for 12 years. And then they got, as we say in South African, full. They got, it was just too much for them. And they began to rebel against Chedarla Omer. 
and they refused to honor him. Now, Avram, our forefather, has come to the land of Canaan. He's been in Canaan, in the land of Israel, for 10 years. Suddenly, there is a war between Nimrod and Kedala Omer. Okay? Nimrod hears that the five kings have rebelled against Kedala Omer, and he decides he is going to wage war against Kedala Omer and bring him back. Under his rule. So Nimrod goes to the other two that is in the access. Okay, who are they? Arioch and Tidal. And he says to them, come and join me. Let's fight with Kedala Omer. Nimrod rocks up at a certain place to, to have this fight. He has, so it's Nimrod and the two kings of the four king axis. They arrive with an army of 7,000 troops. Kadala Omer arrives with 5,000 soldiers. They come together. They fight in a valley in Babylon. It's between Elam and Shinar. And in the first battle, 300 of Nimrod's best men are killed. Amongst them, Nimrod's son by the name of Mardon. Nimrod sees his incredible loss. He turns back to his place, goes back to Babel in absolute disgrace, and he agrees now to subjugate to Khadar La Omer. So now we have Khadala Omer, Nimrod, who was known as Amraphel, and Arioch and Tidal forming the axis of four. Then we have the five kings, basically of Stom and Gomorrah. Again, the five kings were Bera, Birsha, Shirav, Shem Ever, and Bela. And they refused to. They, they, they were, um, not happy with Khadala Omer. They rebelled against him. And this went on for 13 years. What happens then? Okay, it says in verse 3 and 4, Kol ele chavru el emeka sidim. They now come to have a war. The axis of four kings, which Kedar Laomer is the chief of, alongside him is Nimrod, Arioch, and Tidal, comes now to help Kedar Laomer subjugate or squash the rebellion of the five kings, which were basically the axis of Storm and Gomorrah, of Bera, Birsha, Shenav, Shem, Ever, and Bela. So it says here, Kol ele chavru al emek Sidim, they come into the valley of Sidim, Hu Yama Melach, this is the Dead Sea as we know it, this is where they were fighting, Shteim Esreshana Avdu et Kedar Laomer, Oshlasha Esreshana Maradu, 12 years these five kings had served Kedar Omer. now in the 13th year they rebelled. So, Ba'arba Esre Shana in the 14th year, Ba'kadala Omer ve'hamalachim asher ito, here comes Kadala Omer and the three kings that were with him, ve'yaku et refayim me'ashtorot karnaim ve'et zuzim bahem ve'et emim b'shave kiryatayim. Ve'et achori b'harbam se'ir ad el paran asher al hamidbar. Kedala Omer comes with the three kings and they defeat basically, they give a whole lot of places, but they smash these five kings to absolute um, smitheries. They came with a very, very large army and they were very, very skilled. 
And there was huge wars. They waged a lot of wars and they basically squashed this rebellion. Via Shuvu and then they turned back via Vo El Ein Mishpat. They came to a place called Ein Mishpat. He Kadesh it was now called Kadesh, Viyaku Tamar. They defeat the Amalekites as well as the Amorites that lived in this place called Khatsatson Tamar. Now why is the Torah telling us that they finished fighting and they came back and they did a little bit more of a wipe up? Because in this last battle, there were many battles that took place. The Torah goes and says, Ein Mishpat, he Kadesh, Ein Mishpat, the place Ein Mishpat, which is now known as Kadesh, is actually a, a, another name for Abraham himself. Okay? What was actually happening? The Kadala Omer, um, knew that he, he, he had to kill Abraham. Abraham had created an incredible name for himself. He was pretty famous around the entire um, area, he knew that um, Abraham had supernatural powers and he was hoping to kill Abraham and be done with him once and for all. Listen, he was on a killing spree, he had subjugated the five kings and he wanted basically to kill two um, birds with one stone. And the reason why the rabbis say that Ein Mishpat is for Abraham, because Ein also comes from Ayin. And they said, it says, they, and Mishpat comes from judgment, means they came to the eye of judgment. He Kadesh, which is now holy. And the rabbis go and say that the, the eye of the judgment, that he who was looking on and being judging was God, they were going to wage war against Abraham and take away his holiness. So really Nimrod was very excited to be with Kadala Omer and the two other kings. They had been unbelievably successful against the five kings. Um, they now wanted to wage war against Avraham. But the plot thickens. The Torah takes it a bit of a, a, a step back again and says the five kings, the king of Storm, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Tzavoyim and the king of Bela all come and they come to this valley of Sidim where they're going to fight. And the four kings, Kedala Omer and Nimrod, Tidal, um, and Arioch come to fight against them. But something happens. Kasidim, this place where they are fighting. This valley of Sidim was covered with tar pits. Okay. What happened over there was that there was a lot of um, asphalt you know, for build, used for building. There was a lot of tar pits and they panicked. When they saw this axis of four kings coming towards them in this valley of Sidim, they panicked and they fled. And a lot of them died. Most of them fell because they fell into these tar pits and perished. And whatever, whoever managed to escape that fled to the hills. Now the kings of Stom and Gomorrah were amongst those who slipped into the tar pits. But a miracle happened 
and the king of Storm was saved. How was he saved? It said he fell into the pit, and I guess he was groping there and and uh, struggling to try get out. And Abraham passed by and saw him struggling to escape. Okay, and suddenly he got a new energy, and he was able to get out, which clearly, clearly was um, a miracle because later on the king of Gomorrah perished in the tarpet before Abraham passed by and would never, ever have survived. So the Midrash comes to teach us that God created an open miracle again for Abraham and for the people around. It wasn't because the king of Storm had so much merit, but rather in the merit of Abraham because God was increasing and and, and fundamentalizing Abraham's um, presence in that that region and everybody understood that nobody could have survived those tarpets in fact the majority of the axis of five kings had died and that the king of storm was only saved because of Abraham and it was done so that people could see this and say we can't carry on believing in these kings and their deities and all the um, idolatry that they, they were serving, but we should rather turn our hearts and serve the God of Abraham. Now, let's go forward a little bit more. They finished these vicious fights. The early person that survived is the king of Storm, and early because Abraham passed by him and Abraham actually saved him. Um, they wipe out the rest, and the four kings are now victorious. Go back, they return, and on their way back, they come to Ain Mishpat. They're coming into the area of Abraham. What did they do? They seized all the possessions and food supplies that were, that belonged to Stom and Gomorrah. And everything that they ate. And they went. But, who was sitting in Stom? Abraham's nephew, Lot. Remember, when they separated, Lot said, I'm going to go to the fertile Jordan Valley. You go the other way. Abraham is sitting in Hebron, okay, way up from there, and he's minding his own business. This entire thing's happening. The four victorious kings are making their way back. They're trying to get to Abraham, and they come up with an incredible plan. Let's capture Abraham's nephew. Because guaranteed, if we capture Abraham's nephew, Abraham will be coming um, to try rescue him, and then we will once and for all manage to kill Abraham. So Vayikhu et Lot, they capture Lot as a prisoner of war, Ve'et Rechusho, and his possessions, Ben-Achi Abraham, he was the nephew of Abraham, Vayelchu, and they went on. Why? Because who? Yoshev. Storm. Um, Lot was an inhabitant of Storm. So they had actually a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, plan, war strategy that we want to get to Abraham. Can't wage war directly with Abraham, but let's rather capture Lot because he was part of this entire disruption in the area. Let's capture him because we know 
that not too, not too much time will pass and Avraham is going to come try rescue Lot and we will then have the upper hand and surely Avraham would be small fish compared to the, 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 the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers that they had to deal with in fighting this five, uh, this, this, the, the five kings that access, um, or access, access of kings which completely um, they, they had wiped out. So here is a scene now of how World War I erupted and how it's coming to a tapering end with them now having the prize booty of Lot, the nephew of Avram. This is Mystical Text with Abel Kazilski. And we're in the midst of a conflagration where four kings being victorious over the five kings are making their way home and they capture Lot. Now, there was one guy that was sitting there watching this whole thing, figuring out, well, how's he going to come up on top with all this that is going on? He was none other than Og, the king of Bashan that lived in Ashtarot Karnaim. Now, who was Og? If you all remember, you've been following um, our teachings. Um, he was an, a giant that could not fit into the ark and, in fact, hung on the, the um, outside of the ark and survived the flood. So now he is a king. He's sitting in Bashan. He's hearing what is going on, and he figures, well, how can he come on top? He comes with an ingenious idea. Verse 14, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 14 reads as follows. Vayavo hapalit, the fugitive comes. Now, they don't call Og by his full name. They call him the fugitive. He's a fugitive because he's run away and managed to escape. Okay, two calamities. One, he managed to escape the calamity of the flood. And second, he managed now to um, escape the calamity of this big world war between the four kings and the five kings. Um, and he was like finding himself now, what side should I really be on? So Vayavo Hapalit, this fugitive, or the king of Bashan, Comes Vayaged la Avram. He goes to Hebron and he tells Avram Ha'ivri, Avraham the Jew, who shoichen be'elone mamre ha'emoiri. He's sitting in Elone Moire, okay, and he says, sorry, he says, Ha'amori achi eshkol, achi enav, ve'hem ba'alim brit Avraham. They give the entire place where Avraham was, Avraham's allies. He was, Avraham was settled in the plains of Mamre, of the, em, of the Emirates, the brother of Eshkol and Avner. The, these guys were on Avraham's side. He comes to Avraham and all this, by the way, takes place on Erev Pesach. Okay. Um, and he tells Avraham, guess what? Your nephew has been captured by the four kings, by Chedala Omer and his um, his guys, they have captured him, and he is in grave danger. Now, the rabbis look at Og, and they figure, is he meritorious, or does he deserve to die for this? Like, what is he doing? So, the first, or should he rather be punished for telling him? So, they said, firstly, he deserves merit, because... 
through him telling Abraham, um, Abraham will manage to save Lot's life, and therefore he deserves a blessing. And the blessing that he actually receives is that he lives a very long life. He actually lives for 800 years. He lived from the time before uh, the flood, and which which occurred in the year... 1656, and he lives until the Jewish people leave Egypt and are in the desert some 800 years later, which was an extraordinary long time um, because even if you could see by Abraham, um, lifespans were cut down into the early 100s, the 120, um, you know, became the benchmark. If you could live to 120, that was fantastic. Um, so he lived 800 years and he had, he got that blessing because he went to tell Abraham. However, his intention to tell Abraham was evil because it wasn't that he was just being a goody two shoes and telling Abraham. The reason why he wanted to tell Abraham was because he was sure there was no question in his mind that Abraham would be killed, um, trying to save Lot and he wanted Sarai. He wanted Abraham's wife, um, as, as his own wife, as we know, Sarai was beautiful, and anybody who um, saw her, like, just was absolutely gobsmacked by her appearance, and he wanted her for his own. So he had an evil intention. And so here we have a whole, whole interplay between and discussion, which unfortunately I can't get into too, in, in too much um, detail about what is more important, intention or the deed? And uh, just the short answer, <coughs> excuse, the short answer is that um, both are important. And obviously, if one's intentions can be aligned with one's deed um, in a good way, that is obviously prize number one. But you can also have people that can get merit for their um, deed and their intentions aren't a hundred percent correct, and this is why in Torah we have mitoch lolishma balishma, from not having the right intentions, you'll come to the right intentions. We have the saying hamasehu ha'ikar that the deed is the most important thing, and that is why many times in Judaism we will encourage people to start just keeping the mitzvot, even though you don't understand it fully, or you're not doing it exactly for the right reason, and from there take it. You know, it, it will come to the right reason. Having said that, he tells Avraham to go out and go save Lot. So Avraham hears that, um, that his kinsman, that his family has been taken. He musters up his disciples, those people that believed in him, um, who were born into his household. How big was Abraham's army? Very tiny. 318 men. And he wants to start chasing them all the way to Don, to a place called Don. Now, what's very interesting is that Abraham this, the Midrash tells us again, fills in the gaps, that before entering battle, Abraham asked them, he, gave, he, he armed them well, he gave them precious stones, he gave them money, but they didn't, these 380 men did not have the enthusiasm for battle. And Abraham said to them, is there anyone amongst you who's faint-hearted? Is there anyone who's afraid to go into battle? If he is, let them return home now. And... um 
when he did, many of his 318 men took up the offer and returned home. We are told that only a few remained with Avram, one of them being his servant Eliezer. So he had very, very, very few people with him at the end. And just by the way, that's why there is a Torah law that when one goes into battle, um, one should not and, and must ask um, the soldiers if anybody is faint-hearted or scared because one of the worst things you can do is you're fighting into battle, somebody gets fear, f- wants to flee, and he actually uh, takes his entire contingent along with him. So this is where Avram is. He gathers 318, comes down with a handful of guys at the end. But we are told that Avram's muzzle was very strong. Um, he had a lot going for him. And even though the kings were now in Syria, these four kings had moved on to Syria along with Lot. He had Kfitzat Derek, He had a shortening of the road. And what would have taken many, many days um, to go there, to ride there, he landed up going. It's actually a 10-day journey. He landed up going from Hebron to Syria um, in one day. He did that trip. This is Mystical Text with Adel Kazilski. And I want to end off with a story that actually is connected to this. Avraham leaves with his couple of men. And we are told that when Avraham left, he left with some sand, a special powder, which he was going to use to fight these four kings. I just actually imagine the preposterousness of this. These four kings are violent. They've got shields and swords and armies and dong- uh, horses and carriages. And Abraham leaves uh, just uh, like a couple of men with some special powder. But we know that when they took the special powder and they mixed it with some straw and they threw it at the enemies, this powder was as effective as swords. And the straws became arrows, and they actually mowed down the entire enemy. And we're going to get stuck into that um, part of the story next week. But I want to end off with a story that is based on the story. We're told many, many years later in the Talmud, there was a great sage that is well known. His name was Nachum Ish Gamzu, Nachum the man of Gamzu. And the reason he had that strange name was that he wouldn't, he, whatever troubles befell him. He never ever complained. He always just used to say the words Gamzulatova. This is also for the good. Everything's directed from on high. Everything appears good even when it appears evil. He was the most positive, upbeat guy you could ever imagine. So once the Jews decided to send a gift to the king and the leaders at a meeting decided that the best person suited to present this tribute would be none other than Nahum Ish Gamzu. He was a tzaddik, he was a saint, he was, uh, miracles always happened to him. So they sent him on his way and they gave him a chest full of precious stones and pearls as a gift to give to the king. Now things didn't happen very fast there, travel didn't happen very fast, so there was quite a way to get to the king. Along the way, Nochemish Gamzu spends a night in a certain place and the people asked him what his merchandise was in his chest and he replied that he's bringing a tribute to the king. 
Well, there were some like, you know, um, Nosy Parkers there who understood that he must have something of value. And in the middle of the night, a number of men came. They emptied the chest of all the valuables. They filled it with sand, sealed it as before. And, of course, in the morning when Nachum Ishgamzu woke up, he was none the wiser. And he continued on his way, bringing the chest to the king. And, of course, there was a letter that went to the king to say, it's a hope the king will favorably accept this tribute from the Jewish leadership and the value of this gift indicates how much we esteem the king. Unbeknownst, Nochemish Gamzu was carrying sand. When he arrives before the king, he gives this whole big spiel. He opens up the chest and the king finds it filled with sand. The king becomes enraged and livid. How are you making fun of me? This is disgusting. Does this gift show that how you hold me? Whoever issued this order deserves to die. But since you're not around, um, you're going to die. And he causes his guys to take Nochem Ishgamzu out to get be executed. Now, Nochem. Being Ishgamzu, a man that says Gamzulatova, this is also for the good, pronounced it in full faith, this is also for the good, and was being led away to his death. As a miracle, God causes the prophet Eliyahu to come out disguised as one of the king's courtiers, and he says to the king, Please, king, before you kill Nochemish Gamzu, ponder the situation well, because you know there is a story in the Bible about their forefather Abraham that went and fought against four formidable kings with some sand in a, in a box that turned out to be incredible weaponry. First, let's go check this out before you kill him. So what happened was that um, the king was very impressed with what the prophet Elijah had said, he brought the chest in and God caused the miracle. And this sand, um, in fact, turned into the miraculous sand of Abraham. And as a reward, he gave Nochem Ishgamzu back um, many, many jewels, etc., etc. Um, and uh, this story then became a very, very famous story in the Talmud of how to look at things positively. And God will always come to the rescue. Well, we're out of time. Um, I would have liked to elaborate a little bit more on the story, but uh, time is a thief and is running away with us. So let's leave it at that. We will pick up again next week. In the meantime, Chodesh Tov, and uh, have a wonderful, wonderful week in front of you.